Let us begin in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, welcome to another edition of Seeds of Truth. This is your host, Joe Holcraft, coming to you from KKXX Studios, Chico Life Radio 104.5 FM and AM 930. It is great to be with you another Wednesday evening where we continue our reflections into the book of Revelation. We are now in the last chapter of the book of Revelation, so some exciting things to talk about. But before we get into that last chapter of the book of Revelation, I did want to respond to a question Today is January 11th, and over the last few days, I have received the question on more than one occasion, when does the Christmas season officially end? Um, And how long does the Christmas season officially last? I think there's been some confusion because of not only when we celebrated the Feast of the Epiphany, but also the baptism of the Lord. So while our programming has been on the book Revelation, I have said on more than one occasion, I will take any of your questions and answer them on air. So the question more officially was, does Christmas end on the Epiphany? Now, we all know that Christmas officially begins on Christmas Eve. But yeah, when does Christmas officially end? Well, On January 6th, the Feast of the Epiphany, which in the U.S. is transferred to the Sunday between January 2nd and January 8th, the church celebrates what great event, but the biblical event where the Magi, also called the three wise men or three kings, traveled from the east to pay homage to the newborn king. I, I touched upon this the other day. Now, many believe that this is the date when the Christmas season officially ends, being the end of the traditional 12 days of Christmas, right? However, according to the Roman Catholic liturgical calendar, ordinary time doesn't officially begin until the Monday after the Feast of the Baptism of the Lord, which usually falls on the Sunday after uh, the Epiphany, right, after January 6th. This means that the Christmas season actually extends beyond the popular understanding of the 12 days of Christmas. In 2017, we have a unique situation. If Epiphany is transferred to the Sunday that falls on January 7th or January 8th, then the Feast of the Baptism of Jesus is when? But celebrated on the following Monday instead of the next Sunday. So this year, ordinary time begins on the Tuesday after Epiphany. So what does that mean? Well, Christmas season ended this past Monday. Now, of note, in the older tradition, which is still kept in the liturgical calendar of the extraordinary form of the Mass, Christmas lasts until Candlemas, or the Feast of the Purification of the Blessed Virgin Mary and the Presentation of the Lord, which isn't until February 2nd. Now, Why February 2nd? Well, do your math. December 25th to February 2nd marks what? But the end of a long 40-day Christmas tide that corresponds to the 40 days of Lent. Now, on February 2nd, the church celebrates the day that Mary entered the temple with the child Jesus when her days of purification after giving birth were fulfilled according to the Mosaic Law, 
and when Simeon made his well-known prophecy about Mary and the child. It is historically called Candlemas or Candlemas because of Simeon's prophecy of Jesus being a what for the Gentiles, but a light for the Gentiles. And of course, today we know February 2nd as the Feast of the Presentation of the Lord. This 40 days really goes back into the significance of how the church was celebrating her feast days in the light of Old Testament feast days. And again, it's still recognized in some traditions. So all that being said, when does the Christmas season end? For us this year, the Christmas season ended formally on Monday. But for some traditions, the faithful will carry on this Candlemas or Candlemas up until February 2nd. Everything that we are talking about right now is caught up in the what but liturgical calendar. You know, we ought to extend this reflection a little further because to really appreciate everything that we are talking about right now, we have to appreciate the significance of feast days. Just think about it this way for a second. What are the most important days for you each and every year? Your birthday for sure, right? If you're married, your anniversary. If you have children, your children's birthdays. These days are very important days to us. Maybe there are other days where you traditionally annually have uh, family reunions. You celebrate those days because they fall on certain days, right? Well, the church does so within the context of worship, huh? Worship instructs and guides her very life. In so many ways, the liturgy is the privileged locus, the privileged center of her very life and breath. You remove the mass. What do you have? You don't have much of anything. What did Jesus say? This is the blood of the New Testament. This is the blood of the new covenant. He said, do this in remembrance of me. And this is what the Christian and Catholic church does. Huh? She remembers best by celebrating mass each and every day. And as I've talked about before, each and every second of each and every day. The Mass, in light of our Lord's words, do this in, remember, in remembrance of me, is the life source, if you will, of the Catholic Church. So, all very important. And the when we celebrate is, of course, also very important as well. And by the way, this is tied to creation itself. <laughs> what does John the Baptist say? This is more of a footnote to our reflection this evening, but what does the Baptist say? He says, when he sees our Lord, may he increase as I decrease. When do we celebrate the birth of John the Baptist? But when the days begin to get shorter, huh? When do we celebrate the birth of Jesus? When the days begin to get longer. <laughs> as one shortens, the other expands. So what you have written into the very fabric of creation is very much theological. Uh, and I don't want to get too abstract right now, but an interesting footnote nonetheless. All right, let us get back into the book of Revelation. If you have your Bibles out there, if you want to turn to chapter 22, once again, we are in the last chapter of the book of Revelation. So uh, pretty exciting stuff. Chapter 22, verses 1 to 2. Then he showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also, on either side of the river, 
the tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. So the image of water flowing out from the Lord God and Lamb, who are the temple, is taken from where? Once again, we turn to the major prophets, and in this case, Ezekiel, who sees a similar vision. What did the prophet write? If you turn to Ezekiel chapter 47, verse 1, a very famous chapter, then he brought me back to the temple, and behold, water was issuing from below the threshold of the temple toward the east, right? Because the temple faced the east. Likewise, we read from the prophet Zechariah, who saw water flowing out from the restored Jerusalem in in chapter 14, verses 8 to 9 and verse 16. So next to the river is the tree of life. This mirrors Ezekiel's vision in which trees are seen next to the river, whose leaves are also for healing in verse 12, chapter 47, verse 12. I mean, how can you even begin to interpret this book that we have been at for over four months without the major prophets? It's impossible, right? It's impossible when you begin to see the seamlessness between the old and new, and of course, in this case, uh, Ezekiel and chapter 22. Now, this image that Ezekiel paints that is coming through here in this chapter is an image that also recalls the first psalm where the righteous man is described as a tree that bears fruit. Go to Psalm chapter 1, verse 3. What do you read there? He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. So the tree here has 12 kinds of fruit, indicating what, my friends? That it is a sign of God's people, the church of the 12 apostles, the restored Israel, again, that we were talking about uh, the other evening. Now, for all of this, we are to connect this river to our Lord's words in John chapter 7, verses 37 to 38. If anyone thirst, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart shall flow rivers of living water. So rich. Now, some scholars have been perplexed over our Lord's assertion that he is quoting scripture because there's no Old Testament passage that says, out of his heart shall flow rivers of living water. So what is going on here? Where is Jesus taking this from? Although John may have been thinking about Numbers, chapter 20, verses 10 to 13, and and Zechariah, chapter 14, verses 8 to 9. Many think John is primarily drawing from Ezekiel's vision of the water flowing from the temple. Rightfully so. Our Lord's words in the Gospel of John are spoken in the context of what? How many times have we said that if you want to understand what is going on in a particular verse, you not only have to situate it in the context of the whole of that chapter, but also the much larger whole of the literal sense that we have talked about a great deal. In this case, what you have is John speaking in the context of the Feast of Booze, which celebrated the temple's dedication. So Jesus, my friends, whose body is the true temple, as we read in John chapter 2, verses 19 to 22, is speaking of the water that will flow out of him into believers through him, 
the Holy Spirit will be given. And yet, Jesus insists that the waters will flow not only from him, but out of the heart of the believer as well. And I think this is such an important image and point that we ought to reflect upon. This is because the church is his body and thus also a temple. Think of it. If our Lord's body is the temple out of which living waters flow, could not the same be said of the mystical body? Christ does in us what he once did in his earthly body. How important is that? How important is that? What did we read already in the book of Revelation? That Jesus is knocking on the door of our hearts. Brothers and sisters, when we open the door to Jesus, what happens? He pours his very life-giving water, his very life-giving spirit into our hearts, and then we, in turn, do what? We pour that same water, that same spirit into others. This is the beauty of what it means to be Christian and Catholic. This is the beauty of what it means to give glory to God. Amen? Amen. All of this brings us back to Revelation 22, huh? Where the river flows from the Lord God and the Lamb through the church, through the city's street and the tree of life to all the nations. Now, the fruit of the tree of life certainly may be understood as the Eucharist, which fruitful Mother Church certainly ministers to the nations. Likewise, the river of water is not simply the Holy Spirit, but baptism, the sacrament of baptism through which he is received. So what we have here in a reflection on the life-giving water of our Lord is the actual sacrament of baptism and certainly the Eucharist. And where does this take us to? How can we not think about the cross? We're talking about the tree of life. We're talking about, about water flowing from the tree of life. Well, who is hanging on the tree of life? And who has water gushing forth from him on the tree of life? The church fathers saw the blood and water flowing from the side of Christ, gushing from the side of Christ as the signs, the elements that were pointing to baptism and the Eucharist, huh? the waters of baptism and the blood of the Eucharist, rightfully so, as the new covenant, the new sacramental church will issue forth new life. And this is what the church does in the sacramental life of the church. Such beautiful and, dare I say, powerful imagery here to reflect upon. And be rest assured, my friends, <laughs> John is the theologian, right? Remember, his symbol is the eagle. He soars. He wants us going deeper. He wants us to probe. He wants us to roll up our sleeves. He wants us to work in the tall grass so as to get a deeper understanding of the many splendid ways in which God reveals himself. Once you think you have it all figured out, there's always something more because that is the nature of God. The nature of God is love, yes, but also mystery. Uh, the Greek mysterium or mysterion, inexhaustible reality. This shouldn't intimidate us. This should engage us. We all love mystery. So when it comes to the mystery of faith, let us approach it the same way we would approach any and every other mystery. 
by rolling up our sleeves and wanting to discover what lies on the other side of what we don't see. Let us take that journey into the mystery of God, into the love of God. Okay, Revelation 22, verses 3 to 5. There shall no more be anything accursed, but the throne of God and, the, and of the Lamb shall be in it, and his servants shall worship him. They shall see his face, and his name shall be on their foreheads. And night shall be no more. They need no light or lamp or sun. For the Lord God will be their light, and they shall reign forever and ever. Okay, so John's mention that there is no longer any curse is taken from Zechariah's vision of the restored Jerusalem. If you were to go to, once again, the prophet Zechariah, chapter 14, verse 11, we read, And it shall be inhabited, for there shall be no more curse. Jerusalem shall dwell in security. Now, the reason there is nothing unclean in the city is that the new Jerusalem represents the church sharing in what but God's own glory. In fact, there is no need for any sun or moon. There's no need because his glory burns bright enough to give light to the whole city, to the whole city. When we are on fire with God, when we burn for God, when our love for God is so full of his love, what happens? We set darkness ablaze with our light. If I've said it once, I've said it a hundred times. Don't tell me it's getting dark outside and do nothing about it. No, 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 no. Yes, you are right, it is getting dark outside, but what are you doing about it? If we're on fire for God, then that darkness needs no sun or moon, it needs you. The brilliance of the light of Christ shining in and through you. This is what, again, it means to give glory to God. And truly, my friends, we have to see this for what it is. To be on fire for God is to dwell in the warmth of the Trinity. So it is to dwell in the love of God. This is why we pursue mystery. By pursuing mystery, by pursuing God's love, we will be set ablaze and we will become that light that God calls us to be, especially in these days that are getting darker and darker and darker. Huh? All right, what else could be said here? Well, the saints are said to reign there, just as the 24 elders sat on thrones. And who are these saints? But these saints are priests, bearing God's name on their foreheads as the high priest once did in Exodus chapter 39, verse 30. Thus, by their self-offering, what are they fulfilling but mankind's original calling to a royal priesthood? Remember, <laughs> we are all called to be priests in that sacrificial context. Yes, there is the ministerial priesthood, the cleric, but we are baptized into Christ's one priesthood, which means we are baptized into this call to offer our very lives as a sacrificial offering. What do we read in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 to 3? That our lives are to be a what? A spiritual worship, a holy, acceptable offering unto God. That is what it means to live as a priest in the one priest king of Christ. So, these priests, fulfilling mankind's original calling to a royal priesthood, a hope expressed by the righteous of the Old Testament, 
to see God face to face. They bear their worthiness by the mark on their foreheads, which is the seal of their baptism. Now, before we go any further, there is a question posed here by Peter Williamson that I wanted to get into a little bit, and I think is a great question, a question that you um, certainly have asked, and hence we should get into. And the question is this, what will life be like when the kingdom of God comes into its fullness? <laughs> right? that's, that's a great question. I mean, this is a question I think that we have all at one point thought about, right? What will life be like when the kingdom of God comes into its fullness? Well, anyone hoping for a concrete description from Revelation or elsewhere in the Bible will probably be disappointed. While life in the kingdom will preserve some continuity with what we already know, it will so far transcend anything we have ever experienced that symbols, images, and analogies are as close as we can get. There is one particular analogy here given by Peter Williamson that certainly helped me, at least in my imagining of what it might be like, or at least imagining what it isn't. This is what Peter Williamson says. A baby in the womb is happy and content. The environment is warm and secure. The infant is close to mom, although having no idea what that means. Everything seems perfect until the baby is pushed out of the womb into the world. The life the baby enters is a continuation of the life already known in the womb, yet it is incredibly different, more diverse, rich, complex, and beautiful. The difference between life in this world and life in the coming kingdom must be something like that. I like that a lot. I like that a lot. I think that's a, a provocative image for us to, to reflect with. It is so far beyond us that we can only acquire the barest notion of what it will be like through images from the prophets and the words of Jesus. So the fact that the coming kingdom will be infinitely greater than we can know or imagine, my dear friends, should not deter us from reflecting on the biblical texts that speak of our ultimate future, but should rather encourage us to pray for them and allow, once again, that flame of our desire to be enkindled. At the heart of life in the kingdom is a perfectly complete and full relationship with God our Father. That is what lies at the essence of it, huh? That relationship with God our Father, Christ our Lord, and one another in the Holy Spirit, an extension and completion of something we have already begun to see, something that we have already begun to experience. This is why that analogy of uh, the baby in the womb is valuable, huh? Maybe Paul says it best. If you were to go to 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 12, what do we read? Now we see in a mirror, dimly, but then we will see face to face. Now I know only in part, then I will know fully, even as I have been fully known. Well, there it is. <laughs> there it is. Now, sometimes people are put off by descriptions of heaven as perpetual worship. I have talked about that before, right? Maybe if you are put off by it, you think something like, well, Mass is great and Heavenly adoration will be infinitely more wonderful, but I'm not convinced it is what I'd like to do forever. Okay, I get that. And maybe it is, maybe it isn't. In the end, we don't know. Certainly, there's going to be some element of perpetual worship. But I think we ought to consider 
how we think about worship. <laughs> I think we ought to consider something about worship itself. Here I want to turn to Benedict XVI and his work, The Spirit of the Liturgy. He says something that I think might add to our reflection here. The goal of creation is the covenant, the love story of God and man, right? Covenant is that family bond, that covenant bond with God. The freedom and equality of men, which the Sabbath is meant to bring about, is not merely anthropological or sociological. It can only be understood theologically. What does he mean by that? Well, he goes on to say, only when man is in covenant with God does he become free. Only then are the equality and dignity of all men made manifest. If then everything is directed to the covenant, it is important to see that the covenant is a relationship, God's gift of himself to man, but also man's response to God. Now pay close attention here. Man's response to the God who is good to him is love, and loving God means worshiping him. If creation is meant to be a space for the covenant, the place where God and man meet for one another, then it must be thought of as a space for worship. Now, if worship rightly understood is the soul of the covenant, then it not only saves mankind, but it's also meant to draw the whole of reality into communion with God. And so we can now say that the goal of worship and the goal of creation as a whole are one and the same. Divinization, a world of freedom and love. So did you catch that, my friends? Especially those words, now if worship, rightly understood as the soul of the covenant, then it not only saves mankind, but is also meant to draw the whole of reality in com into communion with God. My friends, when you talk about perpetual worship, you are talking about the whole of the infinite reality being in perpetual communion with God, where we love God perpetually. And what did Benedict say? To love God perpetually means to what? Worship Him. So when we think about heaven as this perpetual worship, we are made to see it, yes, as something within the context of adoration, how we might think about it in finite terms, but also something else, how all that we do is caught up and directed towards Him. Consequently, it is a worshiping of Him. I know this might be hard to get our heads around, right? <laughs> but when you contemplate what we are talking about right now, we just might think of heaven differently. Maybe we do live as we live here on earth. There might be aspects of what we do down here, up there, but it is now for God, directed towards God. It becomes this perpetual worship. Does this mean we stop adoring him? Does this mean we stop worshiping the Lamb of God at the throne? No, not at all. But what it could potentially mean for church fathers and, and well-respected contemporary theologians is that it might include more. In the end, no eye is seen, no ear is heard, and all we are left is to speculate. <laughs> all we are left to speculate. Okay, with that, let us close with a word of prayer in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Good and gracious God, we do just give you a special thanks and praise for the gift of another evening, the gift of reflection, where you call us to ponder, where you call us to imagine, where you call us to engage the beauty of your truth. 
always mindful that it must be done in love and must be done in humility. Amen. Amen. All glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen, and God bless you. Thanks for listening to Seeds of Truth, heard every evening, Monday through Friday at 5.30 here on KKXX. If you'd like to hear this program or find out how you can help support Seeds of Truth, the website is joeholcraft.org.